Hi, I'm Chinny. I'm Astrid. And welcome to It's a Continent, the podcast that decolonizes history one story at a time. So we're here to challenge the common misconception that Africa is a country and essentially appreciate the identity of each nation. Um, and through each episode, we'll be exploring key historical moments which have shaped the continent. Hello and welcome to a special uh, first ever bonus episode of It's a Continent. Bonus episode? Yes, I'm really, I'm really excited about this one. I know it's our first one, so <laughs> it's exciting. It's your early Christmas present. Definitely, definitely. So yeah, we've been busy during this break, book giveaway, and yeah, have had the opportunity to carry out a special interview as part of this episode. Yes, I can't wait to dig in. But just before we do that, as you know, we're an independent podcast and we do appreciate the support that we've received so far on Patreon. So shout out Ninu Daniel Cutty, who became our first ever Patreon. Um, you can also support us on Buy Me A Coffee. So yeah, check out the links in the episode description. Uh, and yeah, enjoy. Um, have a Merry Christmas, Happy New Year and see you back in January. Welcome to our very first bonus episode of It's a Continent and in today's episode we're going to be doing a return visit to our most popular episode which no surprise is Nigeria. Yeah I think that's because pretty much everyone (laughs) is Nigerian (laughs) listening um, in but no I'm quite excited to do this like this is our first ever bonus episode and yeah a revisit as well. Definitely and we have a special guest with us here today we've got Lape Banjo so we're just going to clap. Yes, little class. Yes. 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 <laughs> First bonus episode, return visit, and a guest. We're throwing it all in there. We're throwing it all. I love it. I love it. So Lape is doing the damn thing. So she is a British Nigerian broadcast journalist who has worked across both UK and African networks and is currently a reporter with Sky News. And you've got a bit of a story there, haven't you, Janine? So I actually found out that Lape was on Sky News when I was like having lunch in the office and we normally have Sky News on. And I was like, wait a minute, <laughs> I've seen her somewhere before. So yeah, doing the damn thing. Love it, love it. So as well as her immediate background, uh, Lape has explored Nigeria through her documentary, examining topics such as rising entrepreneurship in Nigeria, and mental health issues affecting local communities. She is described in The Voice as the reporting star of our future. So we are really gassed. <laughs> we are so gassed. We're so gassed. So hi, Lape. Welcome to the show. We're really excited to have you on. And yeah, just really excited that you listen to us <laughs> to begin with. Uh, guys, what an introduction. I mean, you definitely are blowing my trumpet here. But no, I'm lovely. I'm so happy to be here and talking to you guys. You're one of my favourite podcasts. I think I've said this to you guys like over a hundred times now. But yeah, no, I'm so happy to be on this podcast. It's one of my, if not the best, actually. Um, I don't know if I'm going to defend anyone. Oh, wow. (laughs) Yeah, no, it's really good. It's really one of my favourite, really packed, filled with so much interesting uh, topics. um, Topics that a lot of young black people need to be listening to, really. So yeah, um, yeah, I'm more than excited to be here. Awesome. So we're going to just start off with like, you know, the standard first question, like, where are you from? Where are you really from? (laughs) Uh, What do you identify as? And were you born in the UK or over in Nigeria? Yeah, such an interesting question, you know. So yeah, I identify as Nigerian first before anything else. Um, And then obviously, I would also identify as Black British, you know, Black African, that kind of thing. But I think I, I, I would first go with I'm Nigerian. I was born in Nigeria, came here when I was two years old. 
Um, so yeah, I'm not, I, I wasn't raised in Nigeria. I was like raised here, um, but I was born in Nigeria and all of my education was done over here. When I was uh, about 25, I moved back to Nigeria just for a couple of years, just to kind of, the, the Nigerian culture has always been a part of me, you know, I understand the language, I speak the language quite fluently, I speak Yoruba, um, I think Chini, you're Ibo, so um, yes. I'm from the <laughs> southwestern part, <laughs> I'm from the southwestern part of Nigeria, which is where the Yorubas are from, so yeah, I speak fluent Yoruba, I understand Yoruba, so yeah, I'm Nigerian, nice. like British, you know. It's really nice that like you've kept that connection, like having been predominantly spent most of your life, like, you know, in the UK, having that opportunity to, you know, having gone back as well is really nice because that's something that, you know, I moved to the UK when I was seven. But I find that although I identify, identify as both Congolese, but also British, I've not had I've not gone back. Um, so, yeah. How did you find it and how did you com- how did your time in Nigeria compare to what you initially thought of the country when you went back and um, over in your 20s? Yeah, actually, that's such a good question. You know, I think for many second generation migrants, I think uh, there's this kind of third space that we're in whereby mm. you're not fully Nigerian or Congolese, you know, um, in your case, and you're not completely British because you know, you're black, everyone asks, like, what Shani said, where, yeah. are really <laughs> where are you really from? <laughs> you have a really exotic name, you know? Yeah, oh, you're not yeah. fooling us so. with that accent. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. So, for me, it's very much like a third space. I don't completely feel Nigerian at times, and I don't completely feel British most of the mm. time. So, um, I think moving back um, really, like, kind of reiterated that for me, because a lot of the times when I'm in England, I feel like, you know, I know everything about Nigeria. I'm completely Nigerian. I get it. You know, I feel more Nigerian when I'm in the UK because obviously I'm a minority here. Mm. But then when I go to where I completely should feel normal and feel welcome and that kind of thing, and I just feel out of place. And I think that's the first thing people point out to you is that you have a different accent. Um, you're not well versed with what's going on in the country. You know, people can easily kind of take advantage of you because of that. Um, and I think those were the kind of in immediate shock factors but Astrid you know it wasn't something that was completely new to me because yeah. I've been going to Nigeria my whole life so um, my parents were always between here and Nigeria um, and so every holiday I would always go back to Nigeria I had a lot of Nigerian friends that lived out there and lived here as well so I was always connected to the country um, yeah which you is always why had that I, connection yeah. yeah I always had that huge connection with Nigeria so I think in in many ways um it was when I lived out there that I it was almost highlighted how how different I was in some places because you know you work out there is very different working working lifestyle out there is very different um even though people really want to like get to know you because you're not you don't share the same experiences as them even though you're from the same country as them Mm. um people can take advantage of you and that's the reality of it um but I all in all, I did enjoy it. I mean, it was lovely. Um, but like I said, I think the way I would really explain that is to feel like I'm in a third space. Um, and I think a lot of us are embracing that. A lot of us are embracing this kind of second generational identity of, you know, being black or African or even Nigerian in our case, Chini, um, and, and also, you know, being British. I think there's a newfound identity in being, you know, African and British at the same time. Yeah, and that's really interesting because I think because we've seen that there are a lot of Nigerians in the diaspora that have actually returned back 
to Nigeria, living back in Nigeria again. Wow. What do you think the impact of those returnees is, like, could potentially have in Nigeria? I think it's a great movement. You know, every time people ask me things about, you know, Black Lives Matter movement or, you know, racial injustice and race relations, the first thing I say is, look, you're always going to be a minority where you're not at home. You know, wherever you yeah. move to, wherever you settle, you always be a minority. Um, mm. A lot of us didn't realise we were minorities until we went to somewhere where there was a more predominant race, as it were. Um, and so for a lot of people, including African-Americans that have been in America for centuries, I think a migration back to the homeland is something that is completely welcomed both in Africa and it should be welcomed wherever we are living, you know, because I think the only way we can rebuild the, the continent is by, you know, us who have grown up abroad, who are, who are quote unquote exposed, as it were, to like other societies and Western development can now take that knowledge and that advantage and go back and help and I think it's something that I've always advocated for there are serious challenges don't let me underplay that serious challenges yeah, you know very tough trying to mix um, with a crowd that is stuck in their ways that has a completely different mentality that's very traditional and conservative um, but I definitely think that a kind of uh, migration back home a kind of exodus of black people all over the world is something that actually is a rhetoric that we're not really engaging with and I think it's really needed and I think the very few of us that have done it get very frustrated because we're fighting a complete different system that we're in the minority again because we're you know this double dual identity um that, that we just you know that a lot of people can't relate to that so I think the more of us that do that, um, the more the the more important and impactful it would be for the continent as a whole. Yeah, it's almost like a reversal of the brain drain in a sense, isn't it? Yeah, 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 our, yeah. Like our parents like would have left and then left behind yeah. this void, and I guess it's like the but next. Actually, don't forget, a lot of our parents who left didn't plan on staying for this long. They planned to come yeah. out of the world, <laughs> yeah. and they just never went back. Look at it, looking at the time, be like, gosh, I've been here for quite some time. The continent hasn't developed since then, so it more significantly hasn't changed. So they think, why would yeah. I continue that vicious cycle with my children? So yeah, a lot of people didn't go back because no one could take that leap of faith. Yeah, it's so funny, isn't it? It's, always been, it's been 30 years and I'm still here. Like. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, and a lot of these countries keep celebrating independences, but we're still not mm. seeing that level of progress, yeah, are we? So absolutely, it's an yeah. interesting, but I definitely agree with you in the point of the fact that there is an opportunity for us who are here and have this kind of dual identity to invest back um as well to our country of origins and really yeah. um help to kind of make improvements as well i think there's a lot of um, there's a great opportunity there and one of the points that we um that i wanted to kind of highlight on is one of your documentaries kind of looking at the emerging middle class and kind mm. of the role that plays as well it'd be good to kind of just understand from your um time there in nigeria and kind of discovering this group how you felt about it and how yeah just really understanding a bit more into that get more insight into that as well it's an element which I don't think we normally kind of from a stereotype perspective really attack with the continent so I thought it was quite an interesting point um to really explore further yeah and I mean, I mean Ashford you've said it all there that's what I was really trying to you know get at really is the fact that you know growing up again referring back to that sp third space growing up as a minority in this country 
the kind of representations that you see of yourself and back home and the motherland is very, very salient. Um, it's usually the concept of, um, of poverty, of war, of intertribal conflict, um, of, of, you know, stagnation or of wildlife, you know, yes. so it's, almost, <laughs> it's almost the same thing all, all the time. So I, and like I said before, I frequently went back to Nigeria for holidays, visits, a lot of my family lived out there. So I knew that this wasn't the real true representation. There was more, and this is obviously pre, you know, the uh, emergence of, of social, well, no, I wouldn't say social media. I did, the, I did the documentary in 2015, but it was, you know, it was before social media really brought mm. to the fore, you know, the lifestyle of Africans, the, the extravagance of Africans and the affluence that, mm. that is there and that we didn't see here. Um, and during that time, I was studying for a master's in journalism and um, a lot of my, in fact, I think I was the only, as I was the only black, black student um, in, in that, on that course. And a lot of uh, my peers, you know, I did a brainstorm with them and I said, look, what do you think of when you see or hear of Africa? And everybody said the same things, you know, those themes that I just explored it. Literally wow. everybody. Yeah. Um, and nobody thought of affluence or, or, or extravagance or, you know, you know, our party going and our rich culture, yeah. you know, our food, our entertainment, you know. So I thought to myself, you know what, if I'm going to portray Africa it has to I have to do do justice to it and I had the network of people out there that I could speak to I had what I could film um so it was kind of juxtaposing that uh you know the the negative light that is shed on in western media of Africa versus what was actually the undercurrent of what was growing there um, and when we talk of this middle class the middle class are you know young um, Nigerians in that case of the documentary, young Nigerians, a lot of some who were, were returnees that had gone back there um, and, and kind of excelled, you know, not only excelled because they had the advantage of coming from abroad, but also because there was a thriving um, environment for new opportunities for them. And a lot of people overlooked that. And I think that's what that, that documentary really embodied. I mean, I looked at the justice system. I looked at the, the fact that there was an emerging middle class in terms of, you know, just business, you know, um, as well as entertainment and the arts. And it was just so rich, you know, trying to tell that story really, really well. Um, I mean, other than the fact that, you know, everybody thinks that Africa is, you know, war, war and poverty stricken and that kind of thing. But, you know, we also recognize for our entertainment and our music and that kind of thing. But again, there's more to it. It's, it's not just entertainment, you know, there's also, you know, our business acumen, um, as well as, you know, our, our justice system, which is heavily flawed. Um, but the fact is there are people that are trying to put the necessary uh, parameters in place. So I think that was what I really wanted to embody and show. And hopefully that came across, you know, um, because it's something that a lot of people are just completely oblivious to. Um, and we've seen this emergence anyway of people going back every year at Christmas now. You see yeah. an influx, yeah, so. yeah, yeah. of of of, of um, Black British uh, people. Not even just Nigerians, you know. People are going to Ghana. We saw even last year, isn't last year or the year before, um, where Ghana had a huge influx of African Americans trying to reclaim their their um, origins and their heritage. Uh, you know, we've we've really developed in terms of like you know, how vast our music is now, how mainstream it's becoming, um, as well as our art. Just look at Netflix during lockdown. There's been so much content on there from African filmmakers and that kind of thing. So we are becoming slowly 
recognized for things other than just the things that we've grown up on, which is just war, poverty, you know, like I said, wildlife and, and that kind of thing. And again, I mean, this is a nod to you guys. It's a continent. There's so many different um, parts of Africa. I mean, Astrid, you're from Congo, which is our central part of Africa. Um, and Chini, you and I are from Nigeria, which is in the West, but so different. Yeah, so yeah, different, you absolutely. know. Um, and that's you don't even have to go to the, the the north of Africa and the Horn of Africa, which again seems like is a completely really? different place. So, yeah. being able to bring all of that rich and vibrant and such a you know a vast culture to people's minds and telling that history is is part of the story, and that's essentially what you guys are doing as well. So, I think it's really necessary that we push that narrative. Absolutely. I mean, I was just typing Nollywood into the Netflix search bar. <laughs> that yeah. was me during lockdown. <laughs> yeah, same here. I've watched so much content from Africa that I didn't ever think I would watch. <laughs> Brilliant. It's interesting because yeah. I was um, just in this, there's this app like Clubhouse where you can listen on conversations. And um, there was this African-American woman talking in there saying around how she didn't know that Nigeria had mansions until she watched Nollywood. Like, <laughs> Look at Nollywood, like educating people. <laughs> yeah <laughs> it's not just educating african or white people it's also educating like other black people like caribbean people it's like we have nice houses too like it's crazy i mean it's it's good that like you know um nollywood's becoming more accessible and also the quality's improved that aside um, and the content also... the stories are different now you can they're so relatable oh yeah yeah it's yeah. not the same for so, stories yeah. as it used to be um, but why do you think nigeria has such a strong cultural impact we have, you know, WizKids, David O, Burner Boy, like these artists collaborating now with US artists, WizKid and Drake, for example. How do you think like Nigeria could, or we as Nigerians, or just even um, other Africans piggybacking off of that, take advantage of this and use this um, as a positive perception of Nigeria and the continent as a whole? Yeah, I think, you know, I don't, I don't even think it's just musically that we're quite, um, mm. I think, well first of all our population definitely oh, yeah. helps you know because we're so prolific I was, I've said to someone once everywhere you go in the world if you go to the most remote part of the world and you see a black person there's a high possibility they're Nigerian it's oh, just but... because of our, our population is so much and um we're, we are we are a, a resilient bunch of people so we will go anywhere and and turn it around it's just in our nature it's in our makeup um, I think it's just comes as part of being a Nigerian, whether you're first generation or second generation, it's just in us. There was a recent report released actually in America that the highest number of high flying, uh, high achieving uh, people that were black were actually of Nigerian descent. So like I say, mm. it comes back to the makeup, it comes back to the kind of cultural characteristics that that, that come with being a Nigerian. Um, and like I said, it's not just musically that we we haven't just started being you know popular i mean if you go yeah you know if you go back even okay let's just say music for example it's been we're making waves in that area but we've been making waves in music for years i mean fella kuti who is yeah. the father of um the afro beat without the s sound again was nigerian i mean we had other high life coming out of ghana as well uh the osibi sirs uh um, the Beidou Ambales, um, we had so much of that coming out of Africa, um, the King Sunny Ades, you know, there's, it's, yeah. we've always had very rich, vibrant musical culture, so I think it's not just now, I think everybody's building on that, um, and we're taking advantage of that, and it's almost something that's always been there, 
um, but we haven't had the right resources and the right platforms and now that's happening now if you look even into more detail into the music and the arts we have you know a lot more of, of structure a legal system now you know people are trying to build um foundations as to how people can get royalties and not just be one hit wonders and still be poor and that kind of thing so yeah i think in terms of you know being nigerian as a whole it, it is really part of the characteristics and makeup um and also again it all goes back to the resilience nigerians you know don't really take no for an answer they're all natural born leaders very entrepreneurial especially where Chini's from, who are the southeastern part <laughs> yeah. of the country. They yeah. are known for being so industrious and so entrepreneurial. A lot of the economy of the country is run by people from the southeast. Um, and some people might come for me for saying that, but it's facts. So, um, so yeah, no, definitely. I think, I mean, it's quite a cliche answer, but it is just really the characteristics and natures of, of the average Nigerian that we all take abroad and use to our own advantage, really. In terms of, obviously, I think it, a lot has kind of happened and there's a lot of growth in the country. And I think specifically this year, obviously, minus the whole pandemic words, there's a lot of, you know, um, quite a lot of movements that have happened, you know, when looking at the likes of Black Lives Matter. And it's been quite an intense year. And I felt like, um, I'm not sure about you, but like felt like people have felt quite politically empowered in one way or the other this year. And we can see that with the NSARS um, kind of movement happening this year but from your kind of perspective on it what was the mood like you know at the Nigerian embassy during the protest as you were reporting um, around it? Um, you know I think you're right this year has been like a political awakening for many of us maybe it's because we've all been locked in the house and we've been you know bombarded with media images and that kind of thing so it's made people really think and reflect about the state of, of, of the world really um sometimes i question whether or not you know having solidarity from our counterparts of, of other races you know why is it taking so long for that to happen um you know so but that's a completely different conversation but i think it's been a domino effect from the black black well, from coronavirus to the black lives matter to all other protests that have kind of urged people to go out there and make their voices heard so when i was covering the i mean f first and foremost let, let me just make this clear it's the first time something so groundbreaking has ever happened in the history of Nigeria. Um, the NSARS movement, although it was really following, uh, you know, a subunit within the police, Nigerian police force, following the death and the murder of, of an innocent civilian by uh, the SARS um, police agency, the, the, the whole movement was actually an undercurrent for something that's been, that really should have happened a long time ago. A lot of people predicted it was going to be a class war, um, not actually a generational uh, divide, in which in this case it was. A lot of people thought there would be a poor man's revolution in Nigeria um, because of the widening wealth gap. But that wasn't the case. Things were unpredictable this year, you know, as we've seen with the pandemic. And so the NSARS movement, it just took one thing to happen to set everybody off, you know, um, and it was a generational thing. Everybody knows Nigeria has a very young population. The life expectancy in Nigeria for a man, I think, is between 45 and 50. The life expectancy for a woman falls somewhere between that as well. So people don't, one, tend to live till they're very old in, in Nigeria, based on statistics. And also, people are having more kids every day 
um, which means we have more of a younger population, which again could be the reason why Africa wasn't hit with the pandemic as well as, oh as worse as it was in other countries. Yeah. So I think that's why in this case we saw, saw that solidarity because it was a generational movement. It wasn't class, it wasn't race, it wasn't, you know, gender. It was we're all unified in our age and actually we have to claim our future. And also the fact that SARS was actually targeting young people, young mm. people who were supposedly affluent. And in most cases, it was the young average Nigerian that was being stopped and harassed by police. It's the same police brutality that's going on in America, but it's happening from our own to our own, yeah. which is yeah. which is worse, yeah. you know? Yeah. Um, and, and I think because, again, because the pandemic has taken over all the news agendas across the world, mm. um, this was a time to kind of change that narrative because now we've got something so colossal going on in Africa that doesn't usually happen. We're usually kind of suppressed, oppressed, you know, um, we don't really have a voice or it's quickly um, dampened. But in this case, it wasn't. And there was a real sense of, you know, taking charge and solidarity and not only just in Nigeria, but everywhere else. Like I said earlier, we have a huge population of people and everyone in the diaspora, in Canada, in America, in Italy, we saw uh, protests all over the world, in England. Yeah, it was definitely a global movement. Yeah, definitely. it was a global movement, definitely. Which I think was so surprising. Yeah, uh, yeah, it was surprising. Like, normally, like you say, when it comes to the continent, and consciousness of the continent tends to be kind of, we'll have a little bit of noise and then it'll quieten down and then we can kind mm. of like go back to our own thing and telling, you know, poverty and whatnot but actually being able to have that story retold and shared across I think was really was really surprising for me because it's just never happened it's never happened yeah you're absolutely right and and just being at the London protest um there was a series of protests you know but the one I was at was actually at the high commission um and it was I mean I was there to cover the story but I ended up protesting as well you know because <laughs> yeah. it was just something that we're all very very passionate about it's something that was really unfair a lot of the people there like our parents you know they planned to go back but they they had to stay because the state of the country was just so bad and it was nothing to write home about and they weren't encouraged to go back and I felt the pain in those people's voices they were upset a lot of them were like why am I here living as a minority, doing yeah. four odd jobs, you know, being treated like crap, really. Yeah, um, yeah. Um, and, and only to, you know, go back home and, and it's happening still 10 years on, 15 years on for many. So I think a lot of them were, that's where a lot of the people that were there, that was their position. You know? They felt that it was unfair that people like them had to leave and be selfish and leave and not stay and fight the cause. And um, whilst other people were being shot down at and people were being killed. And again, emotions were really high when I went because it was the day after the Leckie Tollgate shooting yes. happened. Um, and, you know, the president of Nigeria still hadn't addressed the nation at that point um, and, and had refused to kind of address people. So people just felt fed up. People felt annoyed. People felt things were stagnated. And, and that is the general notion, even when you speak to Nigerians in Nigeria, when you speak to Nigerians here. And I felt that you know, it was just a really emotional day for many people. I mean, people were crying. That's that's just how intense it was there. And everybody came in their masses. Some people had never been to Nigeria before, but had heard stories about how bad things had gotten from their parents, from their grandparents, and still came that out there. So there was a real sense of solidarity. 
I think. Um, and it was nice to be a part of that. Oh, that sounds just incredible. Uh, it also sounds a bit emotional as well, like yeah, just thinking yeah. about it. And what do you, what are your thoughts on social media activism? Because looking at the NSARS movement, it kind of reminded me of, do you remember the Bring Back Our Girls movement yeah. as well? Because yeah. that was an example yeah. almost as though people just talked about it. Michelle Obama held aside and then it was almost like, okay, back to normal. I feel with this it's like a bit more longer lasting but what would you what do you think about the impacts of social media on these kind of grassroots campaigns do you think that in this case that's why the ends because we're able to actually hear from these young Nigerian people like you know their own experiences what do you think the impact of social media is on these sort of campaigns you know like I said I think social media is always really important it's a huge tool in really really raising awareness for these kind of issues and we saw that in the bring back our girls campaign but again I think the NSARS along with all the other protests that have happened this year have been you know magnified by the fact that there's been a pandemic so everybody has had time to reflect everybody's had time to really really engage with a discourse i mean even if you look after um look after what happened after um nsars we saw same campaigns of police brutality going on in uganda um we've seen recently that in india where farmers are are being marginalized and we've seen protests again from a lot of indian people living in in the diaspora um we've also seen things happening in the congo we've seen things happening in south africa so I think this year has really kind of awakened people in comparison to, you know, when we use social media to raise awareness before, I think this year has made it even better rather, um, you know, bringing those things to light. So I think social media activism is important. Some people think that social media activism is, you know, not as important in going out there and really fighting for the cause. But I think every little helps. I think if it wasn't for social media activists, people from abroad and international media coverage wouldn't have been so vast um, in getting this out there. If it wasn't for social media activism, I don't think even for me, Sky News would have covered that story because nobody would have known what was going on. Um, If we go back to when the blood diamond situation was happening in Sierra Leone, if we had more social media activism, maybe that would have been you know, a lot more prominent um, than it was than relying on reporters going out there and telling the story. I think a lot of the times uh, social media brings it to everyone's doorstep. I mean, you can always ignore it on television, but when it's coming on your phone, thick and fast, fast yeah. different kinds of information, you, you can't really hide from it. And it's, it's really in your face, you know, so it's good. It's very good, I think. Definitely been like, I think you're right in the sense that this year, what's made it different is having had the space and time to do it. And I think also yeah. you've seen a lot of people um, taking the time to also learn because all we have is time. Mm, <laughs> it feels exactly. like yeah. at, the, at the moment. So it'll be good to see that carry on as we hopefully kind of get out of this um, current situation and everything. Um, yeah. But we couldn't, it couldn't be one of our episodes, even if it is a bonus episode, without discussing a bit of corruption. Um, <laughs> Good old corruption. <laughs> love a coup. It, it, yeah, love a coup, love a coup. Because, you know, love a coup. in the, the two seasons that we've covered, a lot of the themes, it usually, I might miss a bit, but it usually goes like this. Colonialism happens. We get independence. Yeah. Um, with quotation marks then there's corruption there's a coup and then there's more corruption so normally that's normally been kind of the steps that we've um followed but what I wanted to get from your perspective is around the piece of accountability 
with it, you know? So we can, you know, when we've had discussions around looking at specific countries, it's very easy often to then blame the kind of colonizer history that we've had. Yeah, yeah. But then it's also looking at at which point do African leaders also have a responsibility and take ownership, you know, even just looking at, um, as we're discussing Nigeria, billions of dollars, you know, the, com- the country makes so much money from oil, billions of dollars revenue lost as a result of corruption. So it's just looking at that and when you're looking at kind of the poverty within the country, but also when we have this rising middle class, it's looking at that issue is like who, at which stage do we then become as Africans accountable for yeah. our own kind of history and what we're also doing to um, the country? What are your thoughts on that? I think Astrid, in the simplest way, I think what you're saying is when are we going to move on from this victim mentality that a lot of <laughs> black people have? No, it's true. It's, I think no, yeah, no, we, do, we do yeah. need to move on from that and, and be actually held to account rather for what what it really is you know sometimes is is our fault and our the result of our mentality and and greed um I think it's worth adding though before I do answer that question that a lot of the times people don't really revisit not just Nigerian history but African history pre-colonization people don't know a lot about you know where Africa was before colonization and enslavement and all of that and and I think we have to go back to appreciate a lot of our rich culture. Um, we're not we're not as stupid as the way people think that we are. We we're not as dependent, and and a lot of you know our history has actually been emulated from a lot of Western civilizations today. Um, but like I said, I think when we do look at colonization and the effects of colonization, I don't think corruption is something that's unique to Africa. No. Um, I think corruption is widespread all over the world. I think it's just that other countries have made their corruption a lot more sophisticated. We know about um, you know, tax havens in Sweden and in Monaco. Um, conveniently, you know, heads of government will you know, put their their funds that they've made into other tax havens and so on and that that is corruption um but nobody talks about that you know people talk about you know the black and white corruption that we see in africa um but the effect of colonization is the fact that you know we are hundreds of years behind politically um because democracy is something that was essentially forced on us it's not something that is unique to our culture it's not unique to our identity or the way in which we govern we, as I can only speak for Nigerians, really, we're used to a feudal system um, in the southeastern part of Nigeria, which is where Chini's from. Um, they had, uh, again, a feudal system where the Ezes, um, who are kings, were also the people that ruled communities. Um, but they operated in a very liberal system where parts of the community could contribute and they would have meetings about the community development and so on. Where I'm from, we had the Obas, again, kings, um, and they would, the Obas would have councils and they would make sure that the communities are developed. And they still have them now, but their power has been reduced significantly um, because of the effect of democracy. And I think democracy is what is essentially killing Africa and is leading to so much corruption, you know, because even if we look at the enslavement period, where some people always have, some people are from the school of thought that actually some of our own people sold us into slavery. That is corruption, isn't it? You know, selling your own just to get a bit, a quick buck. Um, But, but that's not, that's not, you know, where our problem really is. Our problem really is in, is in the style of governance, you know, 
if we can change our governments and our systems of government, um, I think that's when we can really be held to account for certain things. And I also think our economy is heavily reliant on the West because, you know, that, and that's where that's where the loopholes for corruption come in, you know, because we're we've obviously moved on from slavery and that kind of thing. But now we're in, in, in a form of like neo-slavery, if, 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 if I can put it like that, whereby we're economically dependent. We've borrowed a significant amount of money from the World Bank. These funds are siphoned by bad leadership, um, essentially dictators that always, by the way, tend to start off really well. And good oh, yes, start with. look at Mugabe. <laughs> Mugabe they always start uh, so well. Uh, Kwame Nkrumah in Ghana, yep. yeah. Um, and some people even, dare I say, I think Thomas Sankara started off really well and had a bad end as well. Um, so, yeah. yeah, it's the same kind of notion across Africa, isn't it? You have a good leader who then turns out to be this horrible dictator. Um, and that's because they just never want to leave power and they don't understand the concept of leaving a good legacy and passing it on, you know, mm. giving that next person. It's always about themselves. And I think it's mm. because of the effects of colonialism and the effects of, you know, bad governance that has made everyone think about me, myself and I and not for the people. That's not the only reason, really. I think really we need to change our style of governance because if we can't change our style of governance then people can't be held to account. Like I mentioned just at the beginning of answering this question where I said that, you know, the feudal system that we had, you know, before democracy, pre-independence, um, actually meant that if you stole, um, you were held to account. And that's like low level stealing within communities. If you uh, did something against your fellow, um, someone in your community, you were held to account. There were local courts that dealt with this. There were, there were systems of governance and judicial systems that dealt with this, coupled with the fact that we don't have respect for the rule of law, and particularly in Nigeria, because again, it's not something that we're used to. It's almost like being forced, you know, you're forced into this way of life that really, Nigeria gained independence in 1960, what's well, been 60 years, you know, for us mm. to develop a democracy that other countries like America and the United Kingdom have done for hundreds of years. And even then, if you look at mm. America now, there's claims of corruption in the, in, in the election. So it makes you wonder, how long will it take for Africa to get to the point where we have a smooth and seamless method of governance where corruption is not only just about stealing money, it's also about, you know, robbing people of their rights as well. Um, when will we get to the point where that will be done seamlessly? You can't compare 60 years to 400 years, can you? No, you so, definitely you can't. Yeah. That, yeah, that definitely hits the nail on the head. Like, there's no comparison. And I think I, in terms of some of the episodes that we've done, we've definitely looked at that kind of local feel where, like, communities in the past were very much, people were held accountable yeah. in much smaller communities. Whereas yeah. now you've got these leaders who, I don't know if they just get, way too bureaucracy it's just too much yeah it's yeah. just too much it's and too as well, much the, power the swathes of land as well because the communities were smaller and often these countries yeah. are like a combination of several communities then put together so it's like oh i've also inherited like this massive yeah. amount of land and people so yeah it's quite crazy and the awful effects of the amalgamation as well because obviously exactly clumped clump together when we really shouldn't have been so you just get Absolutely. perpetual violence and conflict. An example is like looking at Nigeria's 60th independence, how in the diaspora people are like, yeah, 60th anniversary, Nigeria flag, Nigeria flag emoji. And then those who are actually living in Nigeria were like, 
a fool at 60 like yeah, <laughs> it's always yeah. a fool is there a kind of disconnect because I was in like oh my gosh if not for COVID I'd have probably found my way to some kind of party celebrating Nigeria's 60th yeah. but what am I celebrating you know like is there a disconnect between those in diaspora the, the and those two yeah I think for me I find myself somewhere in the middle of that because I've lived out there and I understand the plight of the people out there but I also understand here being able to claim your heritage because again mm. we're in the minority so it's always nice you know to claim your heritage we see when our, our neighboring Ghanaians you know are very very happy on their uh, independence you look forward to yours it's just that that kind of you know, it's my birthday too, sort of thing. So, yeah. but I think living everyday life, a, a life of struggle mm. in Nigeria, um, makes people realise that actually, what what is there to celebrate? Yeah. We're still in the same position from many years ago. Things haven't advanced. We're having an, uh, you know, a severe increase in a brain drain of people leaving the country. Our healthcare system is nothing to write home about. Our education system needs significant revamping. Insecurity is still an issue and it's always been an issue. We have very, very key problems that face and plague the country. Um, and I think a lot of people that live that life on a day-to-day basis are angry. They're upset. Yeah. And that's what really came to light during the NSARS protest. You know, it was after the independence. So people are upset. People, even at the NSARS protest in Lagos, there was a man who was 83. He was a father of one of the organisers of the protest. And he said, we're still living in a country where we have the same issues from compared to when I was a boy. Yeah. And that just puts things into perspective, doesn't it? That if that's the day-to-day life for every Nigerian, there is a disconnect. Because if you're living abroad, you have light when you come home. You know, you have electricity yeah. when you come home. You have Wi-Fi. You're able to go to a good school. You know, you have um, security. You can afford to travel. You can do this and you can do that. The fact that just because you're Nigerian by blood and passport doesn't mean we share the same experiences. So mm. I think a lot of people were kind of offended that people in the diaspora who hardly go back home, some people have never been home at all, um, are suddenly, you know, so happy to be Nigerian and saying, look, actually, um, you know, we're Nigeria at 60, blah, blah, blah. This is amazing. And always wanted to go for that lovely party. But actually, the real issues beneath all of that are deep. Um, and I think that's what really a lot how a lot of people felt and both feelings are valid you know but you should feel patriotic um you should feel you know very proud of where you're from um but at the same time it doesn't mean that we should overlook uh the wrongdoings of our government it doesn't mean that we shouldn't highlight the rooms for improvement which there are significant rooms for improvement that we all that nigeria needs to take um so yeah i think that is the independence highlighted the disconnect definitely between people living abroad and living in Nigeria. And when looking at those kind of areas of improvement, which, if you had to think, kind of considered like the top three, where you think kind of these changes would allow kind of Nigeria, but also the continent, the wider continent, to move positively forward, which which ones would you say um, would be key? Kind of would be your top three. Well, the first thing. I would say, I mean, I have two, I mean, there's just so much, but the first thing I would say is definitely the system of governance. We need, that needs complete revamping and overhauling. Because when I, so I covered the Nigerian elections in 2019, and the first thing I said to people was, but you guys are voting this bad leaders in. Like, you're not using your numbers. (laughs) You're voting them in. Like, okay, let's say we know we have been lumbered with democracy, but how do these bad leaders still get to the top? You know, you have... Last, the last election was the first election that they've had the, the most number of candidates. There were about 0.72 presidential candidates. 
um that were yeah yeah i think they're about yeah and they were all late people but people that you know people that were really good candidates that had really good manifestos got like one or two votes um in a part across the country so yeah i mean the whole system of politics in nigeria system of governance is very skewed to one side um and and it's it's set out and it's created to benefit a certain group of people within the country so that is the first thing that we need to tackle we need to tackle our differences and because like i said the amalgamation and the 1999 constitution is the real reason why nigeria is still the way it is today because we've been grouped together people who are very different very different views and so until we address those issues and figure out a way to to govern ourselves we can't move forward the next thing is education our education system needs again a complete overhaul because if we don't breed the right mentalities the right uh, skills and education, then we can't change the way we think. And the only way we can change the way we think is to sort out the education system. So I think, yeah, number one is definitely the system of governance. The numbers in Nigeria, I mean, 200 million people, it's predicted to be 220 million, I think, by in the next couple of years, I think 2040 or something, but it is it's predicted to grow. I mean, the population, we're not using it to our advantage. If 200 million people can vote, and vote somebody out then of course you can begin to see change you can help hold mm. people to account yeah. but at, at the moment our system of governance is so skewed it's it's just completely it's it's a, it's a mess yeah so it yeah. needs to it needs to change the system of governance is the number one thing that needs restructuring and also just as a continent as a whole what do you think around the whole united states of africa vision do you think that that's something that could potentially be a possibility see i'm very for that i'm very pro mm. united states of africa if we look at libya uh, very controversial if we look at libya and Gaddafi and some of the things he put forward again somebody that had good good intentions but it always goes quite awry towards the end but um Yes, I think the United States of Africa would be a complete powerhouse, will probably be the next superpower. Mm. However, the powers that be know that this is, you know, possible and they know that this can happen. And of course, the powers that be don't want it to happen because Africa, which who is essentially like Mother Nature, has all the resources and has all the natural resources and everything that we need. If Africa was to create their own bank, the rest of the world is pretty much screwed, isn't Done, it? So, yeah, yeah um, just... <laughs> and we've seen that across Africa. Once a leader rises that is very pan-African, yes. we see that they're quickly eliminated. We've seen mm. Patrice Lumumba in the Congo. Mm, uh, Astrid, yeah. I'm sure you're very familiar with this. Yeah. We also see that Thomas Sankara and Burkina Faso. We saw that. Robert Mugabe's end was yeah. terrible. Seen Kwame Nkrumah and other parts of Africa as well, even Gaddafi. Yeah. But this, and, and the media narrative suddenly changes to make these people villains. Um, mm. But if you speak to many people from these countries, actually, they're revered, they're, they're loved in these countries. A lot of Zimbabweans actually like Mugabe. But if you look at South Africa, Nelson Mandela almost had to, you know, if you look at his life and his, his life of activism, it almost took a turning point when he had to begin negotiating, you know, rights of black people in, in South Africa in order to get some sort of change. And that's the difference between Nelson Mandela and Robert Mugabe. Robert Mugabe chose not to negotiate and chose not to somewhat sell himself out, you know, and Nelson Mandela chose to negotiate and, and chose peace. Um, and, you know, if you choose peace, you can be manipulated. You can easily be uh, conformed into what it is that the powers that be want you to 
be. So essentially, the United States of Africa, although it's a lovely idea, I think in some cases it could be utopian, coupled with the fact that we have so many disagreements between ourselves. Um, We have the problem of corruption. um, And unless we're unified and the effects of colonialism are set aside, um, I don't think that we could see that happening. Maybe not in our lifetime, maybe in our kids' or grandkids' lifetime, hopefully. Um, We also have an issue with the Francophone countries in Africa because heavily dependent on France and, and almost, you know, don't really embrace their Africanness, I think. Um, There's a lot of connection to France. There's the language barrier between, you know, the Francophone countries and the Anglophone countries. Um, And that's intentional. I think, yeah, I think it's a utopian idea, but it'll be lovely to see it happen because we would then be a force to reckon with. The Wakanda that we see on telly would finally come to life. Yes. Finally would have made it happen, made it happen. Which I think is such a nice, like, would be such a fantastic opportunity. Because as you said, like, we have all of the resources. If we were able to come together as one community, it would it would be incredible. I'd literally be out of here tomorrow. <laughs> yeah, oh yeah. yeah. First flight out flight. of here. <laughs> <laughs> I'll be on the next <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like I would literally be out of here over like and actually investing and making that investment there. But it yeah, I think it's such a nice place to also um yeah, end it with that. Like it's such a, been such a nice opportunity to get to talk to you and just have the opportunity to I hear your thoughts on the continent, Nigeria, and your experiences as well. Um, so, yeah, thank you so much for chatting to us. Like, yes. we massively appreciate. Of course, it's been such a great chat. Thank you. <laughs> thank you so good. Um, please do tell our listeners where to find you on social, anything that you're currently working on at the moment. Um, okay, thank you guys for having me. I mean, it's again, loved it. I mean, loved the whole chat and I love you guys, what you do. and and the content that you're putting out there. And so, yeah, I really, really appreciate you guys inviting me on. Um, Social-wise, I'm, I'm not really a you know, serial poster, but you can find me and see a lot of my work on Lape B, that's L-A-P-E-B-E-E, that's on everything. Uh, that's on Instagram, Twitter, and yeah, I think that's it. I think I just use Instagram and Twitter. Um, I also post a lot of my reports on YouTube. Uh, my YouTube is Lape Banjo Olarinoye, um, you can find me there as well. Um, and yeah, at the moment, I'm literally focusing on a lot of uh, home stories uh, in the UK. Um, before, when I was obviously living in Nigeria, I was doing a lot more uh, human stories in Africa, covering mental health, uh, domestic kind of um, slave trade, as it were, modern day slave trade um, in Africa and stuff like that. Those reports can be also found on my YouTube page and online, that kind of thing. But At the moment, I'm focusing a lot on home stories in the UK. So yeah, uh, if you really want to have a look on on those, you can find it on all my socials and my YouTube page. Amazing. Yeah, this has been such a good chat. Thank you so much, guys. It's been lovely. Thank you. Thank you.